Welcome to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, one of the fastest growing movie podcasts in the world, where we discuss all things film. On this episode, we discuss American Psycho. Released in 2000, directed by Mary Harron, based on the novel by Brett Easton Ellis. What's up, movie friends? Welcome back to the show. I'm Anthony. And this is James. And today we're doing American Psycho. It's going to be an awesome episode because this has been a cult classic film for decades now. And it's it didn't have a huge box office. It was like $37 million, I think, something like that. Less on, than that. On a $7 million budget. Yeah. Whenever I watch this movie, I think to myself, is there something wrong with me for how much I love it? Like how much I, how entertaining I find it and how much I laugh at it. And by no means are we glorifying this character or his actions. No, We're it. simply discussing and analyzing a fictional character from a fictional story. It's so well made because it is a satire. And the whole point is you're supposed to laugh at this character because it's making fun of that kind of persona. Because what's brilliant about the movie is that Where's the one place where a sociopathic, murderous man would fit in? That's in Wall Street. And so it's so much fun to say that these stockbrokers who have taken advantage of the economic system and have made billions off of the average person, like they are in a way sociopathic. And so obviously this character would per fit in perfectly with them. Yeah, I think a lot of people misinterpret this film. They think like, oh, it's just like, it's like showcasing misogyny and sexism and glorifying it. It's not, it's a character study, yes. But it's also an entire critique and satire on this elitist culture. It's on, on consumerism. It's a critique of this type of male behavior, of misogyny, sexism. But it's at its heart, it's a very dark black comedy, though. It's also about su superficiality because Patrick Bateman is obsessed with the surface. And at that time, in like the late 80s, early 90s, you know, like fashion was getting really big. And, and it was important socially to, to be beautiful and to look perfect and... I, this movie is a, is a discussion on what is the price of looking perfect. And Bateman spends every waking moment of his life trying to produce this perfect out exterior to cover the, the monster inside of him. Yeah, and it was like this time. It was like the 80s. It was like the culture of these yuppie, wealthy young people was so self-centered. It was all about projecting an image of wealth and prestige and like you have taste when really you're all just wearing the same designer suits just because they're expensive. And it was like yeah, an yeah. illusion of being an important person. Yeah, like three of the guys that he works with, they all have the same exact glasses yeah. and a lot of them wear the same suits. And so there are a lot of nods and ticks to that idea that people think that they are being individualistic and they're literally doing the same thing everyone else is doing and so they all kind of fall into like a, a category of sheeps trying to like following the same path before we continue if you want to support raiders of the lost podcast the best thing that you can do is become a patron at patreon.com slash raiders of the lost podcast patrons get perks like personalized messages personalized videos podcast schedules Top tier patrons get a monthly shout out. Plus, we do bonus podcast episodes on movies we don't post on YouTube or on the audio platforms. Giveaways just for patrons only and exclusive video content. Every dollar we get from Patreon goes right back into the show, and we appreciate every cent we get from y'all. Head on over to our website, RaidersOfTheLostPodcast.com, to check out all of our sources of content, our merch, our custom movie posters, and become a patron there as well. Wherever you're listening, be sure to follow and leave us those five-star reviews. If you're watching on YouTube, smash that like button and subscribe now. Yeah, and this is a very graphic movie, a lot of horrible violence. The dialogue at times is very tough to, to hear, but it's ironic because even though people think it's a book like glorifying misogyny, it's directed by a feminist with Mary Harron, phenomenal director, and she did an amazing job because I've read the book and I, after I've seen the movie and like I always thought like how the hell did she adapt this into a, a movie that's not just a great movie but it kind of fills in the blanks of like these thematic elements from the move from the book in a way and kind of shows us like what Brett Easton Ellis is trying to say yeah the book is 10 times more messed up than the movie even like, more than that like they barely scratched the surface of what Patrick Bateman does and thinks in the novel as they did in the film like because it's, it's written in the first person so patrick bateman's just talking to you the whole time for like 500 pages yeah and, and, and there's like the the when patrick talks about musicians and and new records in the movie the scenes are like a minute long but these are like 20 pages in the books where he's talking about like huey lewis in the news and and so the whole point of the novel is what, what would the mind of a psychopath be like like what are they thinking what's going on in their head 
And then Mary Heron translated that perfectly, I think, on the screen because she actually was uh, the first director attached, and um, she she pursued this project and she hired Christian Bale, but the studio didn't want Christian Bale to play Patrick Bateman because he was still a very unknown actor. He had a, a couple minor leading roles and he was in Velvet Goldmine, but no one in America knew who he was and he wasn't a leading man in Hollywood. And so the studio wanted a star. They wanted Leonardo DiCaprio and they wanted like Ian McGregor and um, actors like that who were big stars at the moment. And they even fired Mary Harron because she was adamant about having Christian Bale star because she thought he was perfect as Bateman. And so they were both fired from the project. And then it went through uh, several hands, different directors. Oliver Stone was attached to it. Brad Pitt was attached to it to star in it. And and so this movie shuffled around until eventually it came back because of the project development hell it was stuck in. Mary Harron got another chance. And with this second chance, she was allowed to cast Christian Bale. And you, no other actor, I think, could have done what he did in this movie. Yeah, and they it's kept the budget small at seven million dollars. Which, yeah, it's nine is two thousand, but still, it's not a lot of mo- money for a movie. Most of the most of the money in the movie was spent on the rights to the music they use. I'm sure, and and the clothing and designer wear because yeah. there's a lot of issues with not just the designers who didn't want like Patrick Bateman to like wear their suits while he was killing, and like Rolex didn't want him to say the word Rolex. He said like just watch. Uh, uh, don't touch the watch yeah. rather than the book he says don't touch the rolex don't touch the watch so a lot of these corporations they didn't want to be associated completely with the character despite how close they wanted to make it to the book and especially the 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 music where huey lewis in the news that song it's hip to be square it's in the movie it's in the book but uh it eventually got removed from the film's soundtrack album after the release of the movie obviously and that's also why whitney houston's song i will always love you they play a cover of that. So if you listen to that scene, you don't hear her singing in it because it's not her track. It's a cover they made of that track because she refused to let them use any of her songs in the movie. But I think nowadays they would be open to it for yeah. sure. And uh, the rumor the rumor is that Huey Lewis w- had pulled it from their album because he didn't want to – same thing. Didn't want it to be associated with the movie. But that's not 100% confirmed. But I think Whitney Houston is confirmed where she's like, I don't want to be associated with this at all. I love how – because Easton Ellis is so brilliant with how he – portray the society because all these people including Bateman, Bateman but everyone they're so obnoxious and they're so uh materialistic like they're constantly name dropping designers they're constantly name dropping people and that's what like, the book is like yeah every exactly. every scene he's just describing outfits yeah like when he's is disposing of that bed, dead body in the cab trunk and his friend asks him what bag it is he's like Jean-Paul Coutier, and then he closes the <laughs> trunk. It's like he, like that guy is so blind he doesn't see this dead body in a bag, but he's more blinded by the materialistic object he's seeing rather than the suspicious quality and nature of what's going on in front of him. Yeah, that's a great scene that kind of ties into the theme of uh, self-centeredness and materialism where eventually we'll talk about later on, did Patrick Bateman actually commit all, his, all these murders? Was it all in his head? Did he actually do it and everyone is just too focused on themselves to even care to notice just like Lewis Carruthers, he's he's clearly picking up a dead body and putting it in the trunk of the yeah. cab. And Lewis is just like, where did you get that overnight bag? That's all he cares about is the bag. The biggest doofus in the business. It's clearly, <laughs> <laughs> it's clearly a dead body. But, this, but that's the thing with the movie is like you can look at it both ways because there are some really obvious clues that it's not really happening. And the, uh, there's, I made a list just of the evidence of the fact that Patrick Bateman, what he's doing possibly isn't real. So this is your interpretation that it's not real or you just the, the I like it, to think that it's not real. I like to think that it's not completely fi- in his head. I think like maybe 50 50. I like to think that Patrick Bateman is a psychopath and he has these intense, um, realistic imaginations, uh, hallucinate, not hallucinations, but this uh, delusions, those delusions and a very dense imagination and, he he lives in his in his mind and everything's happening in his mind and that's why so first of all uh, Gene finds that notebook in his desk and it has all the drawings of like murders and people being tortured and all of the scenes that uh, of murder that take place in the movie are in that notebook and then he he's always being confused but for other men uh, he's always he hallucinates that the ATM machine asks him to feed him a dead cat he blows up those two cop cars by shooting a handgun at it. And he even looks at the handgun like, how did that happen? You know what I mean? He's like bewildered that that even happened. His lawyer says that he had dinner with Paul Allen in London twice, even though Pat thinks that he killed Paul Allen a week ago. 
Um, and then Paul Allen's apartment at the end of the film is up for sale. It's all freshly painted in real estate agent inside. All of his friends, the other stockbrokers, they're all vice presidents. So if you look at the business cards in the business card scene, every single one of them has the title vice president. All of their business cards acquisitions is spelled incorrectly. It's uh, purposely spelled, misspelled. And then Patrick also has another typo in his business card where he's missing a space in the Pierce and Pierce part. Yeah, exactly. And then I think what we just talked about, the scene with Lewis in the bag is, he, and it happens in the book too, it's really funny. Uh, he pull, he drags that, that corpse across the, the apartment lobby and there's a trail of blood and there's a security guard there and he, he doesn't even notice it. And the fact that like no one would notice a big trail of blood. So those are like the big main clues that tell the audience that this is all happening in his head. And that I would say the last piece of evidence is that he's often saying things to people that he interprets as something like horrible. Like he tells that that bartender that he wants to like uh, drink her blood. And he tells that other girl that he's in murders in, um, what is it? Murders and acquisitions. Mur no, no, murders, murders and executions. executions. And she hears it as murders and acquisitions. So that that uh, difference between what he's thinking and what he's actually saying is another is like the last bit of evidence yeah plus the chainsaw murder is probably if you want to say that it's all in his head is the biggest piece of evidence that it's all delu a delusion because he's running down a hallway with a chainsaw chasing a woman in an apartment complex and drops it on her to kill her and no one notices or cares no one comes out of their doors but it's also that concept or theme of everyone's so self-centered in this materialistic world that they don't care about anything happening outside of their own bubble so i think for me it's a little bit it's it's an ambiguous ending of course but for me, I, I like to think that maybe not all the murders were, he committed, but some of them, I'm sure. The, the thing with Bateman is what's so funny and how I said earlier, how he blends in perfectly with his people. Like, just think um, the, the group of friends he has, like the three guys he's friends with and he always hangs out with. He always says some of the most deranged stuff you can think of to them. And they, they barely bat an eye. Like, he, he tells them what uh, that Ted Bundy named his dog Lassie. And then he tells them, like... You know, some one part of me wants to, you know, take the girl out for a nice dinner and get to know her. And then the other part of me wants to see what her head looks like on a stick. And none of them even, like, bat an eye about it. So that shows how these people, they're all sociopathic in a way to be part of this group in this community. Before we continue, I have some breaking news from our sponsor, Manscaped.com, who have just released their Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, now available for purchase in the United States and Canada. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping year-round from Manscaped.com. Over 2 million men right now, today, are using Manscaped products because they're the best grooming gear you can get for your money. They've sent us everything from their trimmers, their weed whacker, their men's wipes, their deodorants, their deodorizers, their colognes. Everything is fantastic. Their new 4.0 trimmer, we were the some of the first people in the world to get our hands on it, and it blew us away. Everyone listening, Manscaped products are phenomenal gifts for the men in your life. Get their performance packages. It's a bundle of a bunch of different products consolidated into one thing. And fellas, if you're not on Manscaped, you got to get on an ASAP. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. And Christian Bale is absolutely incredible in this movie. Legendary performance, probably a fan favorite of most people by him. You could probably say that he was born to play this role and no one else could have done it like him like you said earlier. And like he was so dedicated to it that even though he got turned down and by the studio and and lost the role to they wanted like you said Leo or Ewan he even called Ewan McGregor to be like you shouldn't do this movie I need to do this movie it's for me which a lot of people interpret that as like that's kind of a messed up thing to do to like call an actor and tell him not to get it but I think you know Ewan probably was like he really needs to do this role if he's calling me up and and begging me not to do it so I think I should let him give it a go Christian Bale. Even though he lost the role, he continued to prepare for the role for nine months. And he would, he turned down, he told his agent to turn down every offer for an audition or for a movie role he was given. Um, and he spent nine months training for the role, preparing for the role. And he actually did do that morning routine that Pat Bateman does in the movie. He did that for real. And eventually his, his patience and dedication paid off when he got a second chance on the role. And I mean, there's a huge list of actors like this was a hot commodity for actors this role it was so juicy and even if people even if it was a messed up role like it's something like we said last episode it's people like actors like playing villains they're juicier parts especially an anti-hero like this where he's a villain but he's the lead character of the movie which is super rare that barely happens actors that were up for patrick bateman were johnny depp brad pitt ewan mcgregor and leonardo DiCaprio, and yet christian bale 
is the one who I think was the only one who could pull this off. They all could have done a good job, but I don't think they like we said, like DiCaprio would have been great, I'm sure, but he wouldn't have gotten ripped for this role. No way. He never worked. Leo does out. not work out yeah. for roles. He wouldn't have committed that much, I think. It's the same thing as like, would you say Eminem for the Southpaw role? What was it? Yeah, I, I mean, he probably could have done it, but it, it would like Jake Gyllenhaal trained for a year and a half, like yeah. five, six days a week as a boxer, like like an actual boxer to get in shape for that role. That's why he's absolutely shredded out of his mind. And I mean, he would. I mean, Eminem definitely wouldn't have done that, in my opinion. I mean, he is. It's, it's, yeah. it's pretty noticeable. And then, so Christian Bale, he is known by everyone now for his physical transformations. That's part of um, his persona and his myth as an actor. And this was the first time he did physically transform. I mean, he looks a little different in Velvet Goldmine, but it was more aesthetics that he changed. But with this movie, it's the first time he really just completely changed his physical state. The extent to which he changed was like, this guy got new teeth just for this movie. Christian Bale went to a, a dentist and he got oral surgery. Substantial. Yeah, completely new teeth. All new teeth. It's crazy. Yeah, and Patrick Bateman, what an interesting character. And like like we said, this movie is a character study of Patrick Bateman as well as a satire on this culture in this world of elitists and, on Wall Street. And Patrick Bateman's very wealthy, comes from extreme privilege. In the movie, it's I think his father practically owns the company. That's what Evelyn says. But in the book, I don't think that's the case. Um, he's a sex, successful broker on Wall Street who like literally doesn't do any work at all. Like whenever he's in his <laughs> office, he's just like watching TV. That scene when um, Willem <laughs> Dafoe's character, the detective, says, "I know how busy you guys are," and then Patrick Bateman looks down at his desk. He's a, he's a bunch of porno magazines and headphones. <laughs> and he just hides it in his drawer immediately and acts like he didn't see it. And everything about Bateman is a facade. Obviously, you know that's the most basic thing to get from this movie and he's the perfect shell to mask this hidden self of him because he has no emotions except greed and disgust i think that's what he says in the film and he's always talking about how this mask of sanity is slipping from him and it's like he's kind of going downhill worse and worse as the months go on of of his behavior and his and his horrible thoughts and he's obsessed with fitting in and he needs constant affirmation to maintain this identity to blend in and fit in and he's like we we talked about earlier, he's constantly mistaken for other people. But whenever someone talks about Patrick Bateman around him, they constantly call him like a dork and a loser. So it's kind of like he he has to create this the shell to make up for that in a way. Yeah, and his routine is one of the highlights of the movie, and it's an infamous scene showing that all the steps to just every morning for Patrick Bateman, whether it be working out or or that skincare routine, and and I think. One of the best shots is when he peels that mask off, and he's do. It's a great narration. Be the thing with that is he's trying to create a perfect shell for himself, so that when people look at him, they don't see how horrible his insides are. They see this perfection on the outside, and the thing with that is he's never satisfied. There's this. Patrick's always trying to feed this hunger he has, and the hunger goes in a lot of ways. Like in terms of how he looks, like Gene says, "What do you mean you're on a diet? You, you you're so fit." And he says, you can always look thinner and look better. Like, even though he looks perfect, he still thinks he can look better. And then his insatiable appetite for murder that he says that his his murderous lust at night is bleeding into his days. And now he's getting more reckless with his murders and his killings where he's starting to kill people he knows. Because if he first started out by killing homeless people and complete strangers. And now he's killing anyone that ticks him off, like Paul Allen, because... Paul Allen has a better business card than him. He has a better apartment than him. And then he and then he contemplates killing Jean because she's just there, I guess. And so his bloodlust is pouring into his daily life, which is and so he's at a crossroads of trying to deal with this hunger he has. Yeah, it's like the worse that he gets, he he becomes inside, the more perfect and pristine he wants to make his shell on the outside. That's why he's always trying to be thinner and be more perfect. And yeah, I think he actually has three routines. He has that morning routine, yeah, which is so iconic in the the whole thing, like the five different lotions and the and the masks and everything. Um, so that's his, his morning routine is his first one. And then his second routine is his obsessive restaurant and social circle club routine, which him and all the other Wall Street people are obsessed with doing every night. They need reservations to go out. Like, I'm not going out unless we have reservations somewhere great. Wow, only 575. <laughs> yeah, and like they're obsessed with like they go to places, they go to these restaurants and these bars with reservations just to be seen by other people or, or for people to know yeah. that they've been there, even though they don't even enjoy, enjoy themselves there. Yeah, like when he ha goes to that Mexican restaurant with Paul Allen, Paul Allen's pissed because he says there's almost nobody here. Which, like, yeah. So he he wants to be, they want to be somewhere, they wouldn't want to be in a restaurant that's empty. They have to be places that 
have to get a reservation because that means it's crowded. And that means it's, it's a place to be like Dorcia is this infamous restaurant in the world where everyone is trying to get a reservation, but it's impossibility. And Patrick even tries a couple of times. And, and when Paul, I think when Paul Allen says on top of having a better business card, he says that he got a reservation at the Dorcia. I think that's really the big, um, that's what really set Patrick off to want to kill him. Yeah. And then his third routine, in my opinion, and is, is his murder routine, which varies depending on his state of mind. Like, he kills the homeless man. That's the first time we see him kill, which isn't, like, a very planned-out murder on his part. But then he'll have these slow murders where he's luring his victims in like he does with Paul Allen with, with alcohol and takes them back to an apartment and really seems to enjoy himself while he's doing it. Uh, the murder of the prostitutes and everything like that where he lets to, gets to, like, release his inner monster or he doesn't even have an inner monster, you could say, because he says he's just nothing. Like, Patrick Bateman doesn't even exist. He's just some entity inside of the shell of a human being. And I think the—obviously, the, I, I would say the most iconic scene is the Paul Allen scene. I would say that by far, it's so entertaining, it's horrifying, and it's when he's finally letting himself loose in front of another person that we see for the first time. Because we saw him kill in the movie— but this is the first time we saw him, like, stage a killing. Like, because the homeless man, it was just improvised. It's in, in an alley in the dark. And But with this, with Paul Allen, it's a whole, like, he courts Paul Allen and brings him to his apartment. And the madness is taken over. Like, when he's talking about, um, what is it? Is it Huey Lewis in the news in this scene? And, it, and then Paul Allen's just drunk on the couch. It, you can see just how detached Patrick is from reality and how... How giddy he is, how excited he is for the moment. Like, he's like a little kid on Christmas. Like, when he's preparing himself to murder Paul Allen, he's so excited. He's like a little child. It's it's, a, it's an amazing scene. I think it's hands down the highlight of the movie. Yeah, and one of the odd things he does when he's, like, committing murder or doing heinous acts is he has this— Patrick Bateman has this odd behavior where he goes off into pop music analysis. And he does this when he's about to kill someone and also— Although he does do this with the two escorts in the first time he inter he has sex with them, he doesn't kill them that night, even though he does the pop music routine, but he definitely thinks about it. Like when he opens the drawer and he grabs, I think, duct tape or he's like about to do something. Well, no, it's not he doesn't think. He he does stuff to them, but it's, it seems like it's physical abuse because he grabs the coat hanger and he says they're not finished yet. So I think after the initial sex, they then they have... He's very violent towards them. That's why they, like, run out of his apartment and grab the money and get out of there. Yeah, but this obsession with pop music, it seems—it's hard to—for me, I think it's because he's trying to use it as a means to fit in with other people. Like, whether or not he truly enjoys it, I think that's hard to know based on his lack of emotions in general. It seems like Patrick Bateman just listens to pop music and retains a ton of information on it just to fit in anywhere with people because— his analysis of, of whenever, he's, whenever he's talking about pop music, it's like he's reading it out of a, like a Rolling Stone magazine, like word for word, just like how he's talking about those dishes when he takes the woman he's having an affair with out to dinner while she's on the on the medication and she's like barely awake. And he's, he's talking about the dishes just like the pop music, like he read it in a magazine. <laughs> I, yeah, it's hard to really pin down what the meaning of it is. You could say that because pop music is the most mainstream top 40, you know, it, you could say that it is the the least artistic in a lot of ways, pop music, um, and maybe he just is drawn to that the same way he's drawn to the materialistic items of like fashion and wealth, you know, and jewelry. So it could be a similarity between like a Dolce and Gabbana bag and a pipe, a pop song. Here's to the great American settlers, the millions of you who settled for unsatisfying jobs because they pay the bills. Of course, there is something else you could do if you got something to say. Start a podcast with Spreaker from iHeart and unleash your creative freedom. Maybe even earn enough money to one day tell your old boss, hey, I'm no settler. I'm an explorer. Spreaker.com. S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R. Hustle on over today. Let's take a few minutes to head into intermission, which is brought to you by Manscaped. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. And intermission's a lot of fun. We'll do some movie quote competitions, a trivia question, and have have a little fun guessing game back and forth. And so there's a laugh riot. It's, it's always a laugh riot. Africa, oh Africa, <laughs> or is it Brave Africa? Brave, Af Brave Africa. Africa. <laughs> so I'll go first. I'm gonna say a movie quote, and Anthony has to guess it. Let's go. You're not hunting him; he's hunting you. I feel like I've seen it recently. You're not hunting him; he's hunting you. 
Uh, I can't get it. First Blood. Ah, they drew first blood. <laughs> Troutman says that, the, his little yeah, colonel. Yeah. Okay, here's my quote. I like these calm little moments before the storm. It reminds me of Beethoven. Can you hear it? It's like when you put your head to the grass and you can hear the groaning, and you can hear the groan and you can hear the insects. Do you like Beethoven? This is an army movie. Say it again. It's not it's an a, army it's movie. It's a war movie? No, 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 it's not a war movie. I like these calm little moments before the oh, storm. Oh, it's a robbery movie. I'll, I'm not giving you a genre. <sighs> I give up. I don't know. Leon the Professional. Oh, Leon. It's, it's uh, Stansfield. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He it's says Gary that, Oldman. Yeah, yeah right yeah, before yeah. he they enter the apartment. Oh, man. It's a classic. Yeah. All right. Now we will do guess the year. What year did the film Meet the Parents come out? 1999. 2000. Oh, <laughs> damn it. I love that movie. Uh, I got nipples, Greg. Can, can you, you milk me? me? <laughs> <laughs> little Little runt, little baby Geppetto. <laughs> okay, I did, a, I did a Christian Bale one. Guess this movie release year. Terminator Salvation. 2009. Yeah. The movie's trash. That's, I don't know why. Yeah. That movie's not good, guys. Not a good movie. There's only been a couple of good Terminator movies. <laughs> All right, now we do movie pop quiz. The film Scream features a cast member from the show Friends. Who is it? Corny Cox. Nice. That was easy. Yeah. Dun, 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 dun. Did you see they're doing that re- reunion? Yeah. Looks pretty cool. You know, um, what's his name? Is like, thank God we're doing this. I need the cash. Oh, Schwimmer? Yeah. <laughs> I need the cash. No, no. He doesn't need the cash. They need the, something to do, yeah. I think, more than anything. Oh, yeah, they're, they're getting residuals forever. Yeah, they, they're making insane money. It's crazy. They were making a million an episode. In early 2000s. Which is nuts. Yeah. What big movie role did Matt Damon win out over Christian Bale? In an Oscar-caliber movie role. The Departed? No. No. Early, it was early when they were both pretty young. Not super young, but pretty young. Although the part is only 2014, so. So Oscar caliber role. Did Matt get an Oscar nom for it? He did not. But it's an Oscar nominated movie. Born Identity? No. <laughs> I said Oscar nominated. <laughs> that could be like best editing. <laughs> um, want, me, want me to tell you? Let me give it one more guess. One more guess. I can give you a really good hint. Sure, I'll take a good hint. It's set in Italy. Oh, talented Mr. Ripley. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love that movie. Yeah. Christian Bale said that that's the role that he wanted more than anything that um, Matt Damon beat him out for. Wow. Yeah. I mean, Matt's perfect in that movie. I could see Christian Bale doing that. Yeah. But, I mean, Matt's just performing. Matt's, Matt's great in that. Yeah. All right, who's the biggest hater this week? Um, Who was it? The guy who said that we that we don't know anything. We get everything Oh, wrong. yeah, I got it in the archives. Give me one sec. I'll do the uh, on this day in film history. Yeah, do that. So today is June tenth, and in two thousand thirteen, on June tenth, Man of Steel premiered. This week's biggest hater of the week is from TikTok, like usual. Someone <laughs> named Violent Noise is their name. Um, so I made a clip about my my favorite film cooking scenes in movies of all time. It's a good clip. Yeah, it's a great. It's clip. a wonderful, wonderful clip. And I had Chef in there, the movie Chef was at number two where he makes pasta for Scar Joe and then also the grilled cheese and pretty much every scene in that movie makes you hungry. But um especially Scar Joe. I called <laughs> I <laughs> I called the pasta that he's making carbonara and it wasn't it was uh it was um ayo e oil it ayo e oil which is gar- um garlic and oil and um someone on the TikTok obviously this kid violent noise he's probably listening right now uh he's like for being a film buff you know nothing <laughs> for being a film buff and not knowing what he actually cooked. It's sad. I've also noticed a ton of mistakes on your podcast. I mean, first of all, I'm not a chef. I'm, you know, but I'm a film buff, so it actually makes total sense that I got the pasta wrong. Yeah, yeah. Because it's not like the pasta dish that he's making is said in the film. They don't say they don't that. It. He doesn't say what he's it making. Look, it looks like a carbonara. I, 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 I haven't. It yeah. doesn't have bacon in yeah, it, but it I mean, it's meat. easy to see it. it yeah, you could be confused. There's no egg in it. There's no yeah. egg in it either. I, I messed up. I said carbonara. I was like, yeah, whatever. It's probably carbonara. And how is I mean? It's not like it has an integral role to the plot of the film of him making car, um uh, <laughs> ayo y oyo. But the best part about this guy is because uh, we got in a little comment war with him, 
And because he, he said, we, we, he said, you guys always make mistakes. Like you got the cars wrong in that driving episode. And then you got someone's name wrong. And it's like, so you're bringing out, you're calling out a, a movie podcast from nine months ago in which we forgot to call a certain car a Toyota Supra in the Fast and Furious episode. Yeah, I actually mixed up Supra. Yeah. And he's still, he's, he's been upset about that yeah. ever since. Yeah. And so I said, I was like, I literally commented that was like eight months ago, bro. And he <laughs> said, oh, I guess that time doesn't make it true anymore. It's like, dude, really? Your heart? And it's like, and he accused us of making scripts. He's like, you guys yeah. write scripts for your episodes. We don't write scripts. For Who has time to write two 90-minute scripts a week word for word? This is That's all improvised. That's all improvised. And we also, have notes. That's it. If you, if you, this is the reason why we don't film live because it's not scripted. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's not crime junkies. You know, this is not a scripted show. Anyways, it's spaghetti. I love spaghetti. I'm an avid fan of eating it, but it's it's spaghetti and it's a film podcast. Sorry, bro. Who gives a f? Who gives a f? Exactly. He's probably so mad still. He's probably listening. Like, oh man, he probably had a dream about it. <laughs> Sorry, Violent Dream. Violent, what kind of name is Violent? Oh, Violent Noise. His name is Violent Noise. What is, what is Violent Noise? Is that it for our intermission? That's it. Oh, oh, oh no, streaming. One, one uh, more thing. So uh, I have a recommendation for a streaming recommendation. This movie's on Netflix. And uh, I recommend you check out War Dogs, starring Jonah Hill and Miles Teller. It's a great dark comedy. Todd Phillips, who made Joker, directed it. Uh, it's the it's might be the closest thing since Goodfellas in terms of the storytelling because it is told very much in that style with voiceover narration by Miles Teller's character and how he rises from a nobody to uh, a wealthy criminal and his downfall and it's got a great cast. Bradley Cooper has a fantastic small role in it and I think uh, it's it's just an awesome movie all in all. It's funny. It's dramatic. Has good action. It's really interesting because it's based on a true story. So if you haven't seen it, check it out. And Jonah Hill's put on like 50 pounds yeah, for he's that really, role yeah, too. He's got he's, this crazy tan. Yeah, he's, he's massive in that. Like so, such like a flamboyant his, performance His too. laugh in that movie. He's like, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> I love Jonah Hill. Yeah, so this is, I think he, he did this right after Wolf of Wall Street. And so I think with this movie, Todd Phillips is like, yeah, do whatever the hell you want, Jonah Hill. You're you're brilliant. Go, go for it. But yeah, check it out. And if you love 80s movies... Check us out on the latest episode of Buzz in the Tower podcast. We're going to do a Arnold and Sly 80s movie swap on their podcast. So go check it out. It was a lot of fun, everyone. You'll like it. Before we continue, I have to tell you all about MoviePosters.com, the number one place to get your posters online today. Don't go to Amazon. I know it's free shipping, but it is bad quality. MoviePosters.com is the best. They sent us all these amazing posters you see on our set. And they have paired with us to offer a very special promo, Raiders15. Raiders15 is our promo code to get 15% off your order today at MoviePosters.com. They have all sorts of framing, backlighting, sizes, pretty much every movie imaginable. MoviePosters.com has it. Again, use our promo code Raiders15, Raiders15 at MoviePosters.com to get 15% off your order today. All right, that wraps our intermission. Let's head back into American Psycho. And in terms of iconic scenes, I think that easily one of the most iconic of this movie has got to be the business card scene. Yeah, and this scene is, I think, it's the reason, obviously, why Patrick decided to kill Paul Allen because Paul Allen seems to be better than him in every facet of his life. Like, he's, he handles bigger accounts than him. He's like, well, how'd you get this account? He's like, I can't tell you that. I'd have to kill you. Um, he has a better business card. He even got into Dorcia. And Halderstram. Halders, yeah, Halberstram. If it's not completely obvious in the movie, but in the books, business cards are e extremely important to Patrick Bateman. It is vital to vital to his existence. How how people view his business card. Yeah, and my favorite part of the scene is obviously Christian Bale's performance is is exceptional. This this moment, he looks like he's about to tear down a building, but he's yeah. holding all that anger. He's holding it in his hand. He's just like sweating profusely and like <laughs> pale as a ghost. Right. Let's see Paul Allen's card. <laughs> <laughs> and, but I love the business card scene where Paul Allen mistakes Patrick for Halberstrom. Bateman, as he's talking to us, he says that Paul does this because since him and Al Halberstrom both wear Valentino suits, they have the same brand of glasses, and they also have the same barber, but he has a slightly better haircut. It's not just the same brand of glasses. It's the exact same glasses. But ironically, this perfectly describes Paul Allen, too. He's also wearing—it looks like a Valentino suit. I, I don't know the difference, but it looks like he's wearing the same exact glasses, too, and has the same exact haircut. And so 
so does everyone else at this table. Every character at this table looks exactly the same. So that's the real the real irony of these characters. Even though Patrick Bateman is a sociopathic killer, they're all carbon copies of each other. And they're all kind of like this generic, wealthy, elite, elitist on Wall Street trying to to be something better than they than every trying to be better than everyone else when they're all exactly the same and that's what the business cards are like too they all look pretty much the same like they're all the yeah. differences are so subtle but even those tiny subtle differences are so dramatic to patrick in his head and even though yeah so even though he mistakes patrick for halberstram they're all halberstram yeah the compliment was sufficient <laughs> <laughs> don't touch the suit <laughs> and the thing with patrick he he is a, he lies constantly, but he's a terrible liar. And some of the funniest lines in the movie are his ridiculous lies. And I think that like the fact that people don't find it strange, some of the excuses he comes up with are ridiculous. Like multiple times, he, when people ask him where he's going or where he was, he says he was returning videotape. It's not just lies. He's kind of like confessing openly to people constantly in the movie. But I think it also that ties into this concept of. Did he actually kill all these people and everyone's just too self-centered to even realize or notice what he's doing? Like, he's several moments, he blatantly tells friends that he's, like, killing people. He tells Evelyn that he's a homicidal maniac and he draws killing a woman with an with a chainsaw on the table while he's breaking up with her. Um, and, and then again, the Lewis Carruthers scene where he, not only when he tries to strangle him for a second, but also putting the body in the trunk. It's blatant that he's car- there's a body in that bag, yeah. clearly, but he's only focused on the brand. His lives are so ridiculous. Like, he tells the detective, like, he says multiple times he's going to the Four Seasons to get out of a situation, even though the Four Seasons is uptown and he's downtown and there's no way he can make it in time. Like, and he tells... Uh, he tells his friend that the blood stains on the sheets are cranberry. It's, it's cranberry, cran apple. <laughs> <laughs> and then he uh, he says that he he tells the detective that he has a lunch date with Cliff Huxtable, the the father in the Cosby Show. And so it's, his lies get so ridiculous and blatantly obvious that it's hard that no one can even see through his his facade that he's presenting. And I love the scenes with Detective Kimball played by Willem Dafoe because Mary Harron she asked Dafoe to portray this character in three different ways. Um, the first way he would do it, Kimball knew Patrick killed Paul Allen. The second way, Kimball didn't know Bateman killed Allen. And the third way, Kimball wasn't sure if Bateman killed Allen. And Heron did this and would edit these takes together because it gives the audience an unsure vibe as to what Detective Kimball is thinking of Bateman at the time. Yeah, those those conversations, they are bizarre. And it works really well because at times, Willem Dafoe is aloof. And because he, he says that line like, It'd be crazy if one of his friends just killed him for absolutely no reason at all. He seems like his friend, too, yeah, sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Like they, When they have that lunch, they seem very friendly. But then also, he's very inquisitive on the, on the second um, conversation. And it's a great way of by Mary Heron of just showing how disorientated, I think, Patrick is from reality. And speaking of disorientation from reality, they're all like dis, like disassociated from reality because they're all so obsessed with social status these social circles, all they care about is their reservations, being seen at exclusive places. They're all having affairs with each other. They're all doing a ton of drugs and drinking like crazy. They all have these high-paying jobs, but they just sit around their office all day doing nothing, pretending like they're doing work. And even like the scene where they're they're talking about world politics, like they actually care about it or like they're actually going to do something about it. And Patrick's like answer to the question is like, it's 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 a great answer for like a politician. It's just it, so fake. It's literally, um, I think it's literally word for word drawn from one of Ronald Reagan's speeches. It sounds like it. Yeah, these characters they're also detached from reality, consumed by the, these social status, con, uh, consumerism, materialism, and they're all like the extreme version of a person who's sort of lost what it means to be human. And that's why you could say Gene is the only person in the entire film who ever has shows humanity. Because she's the only person that see, who sees Patrick for what he is eventually. Because first he has he insults her on that phone call. And then she finds the notebook and sees all of his horrific drawings in it. And so she's the only person to see through him and to see wh- who he truly is. 
Whereas every, because she's not materialistic and she doesn't care about um, surface, whereas everyone else is so obsessed with the surface where they don't notice these horrible things that Patrick Bateman is always saying and doing. And a, another great example of that is he's always telling Jean how to dress. He's like, I like heels, wear heels. He's like, you can dress, you're prettier than that. You can dress better than that. And she never takes him up on that. She never succumbs to the peer pressure of dressing how he wants. Yeah, you're dressed okay. <laughs> you should probably change before we go out. <laughs> so Dorsey is where Jean wants to go. They know me. You didn't leave a name. <laughs> they know me. <laughs> what, what's that? It's duct tape. Two at nine? <laughs> Great. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, the, the inner monologue of Patrick, I think this movie, it, one of the strengths of it is the, the narration because it helps you understand what's going on in Patrick's head because it's, 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 there's so much in the book. Like, for example, when, when they go to that restaurant in the, in the opening of the movie, and Patrick says he's on the verge of tears when he realizes they might not get a table. And like, an, awesome, an awesome wave of relief washes over yeah. him. So that's just like the emotional roller coaster that goes on within him in terms of just seeing if they can get a table in a restaurant. And so that shows how how like manic and out, uh, uh, out of control he is with his emotions. Yeah, a lot of the dialogue from the movie, it's, liter it's literally word from word from the book. Like, yeah, it's most almost of the same. all of it is yeah. word for word, which is great. But in the in the book, he does some. I, I don't want to go into detail because I don't want to disturb any of our viewers. But he does like the the most messed up things imaginable. I recommend reading the book if you can handle that kind of stuff. It's a really fascinating read. Um, but it is just be beyond fathomable what Brett Easton Ellis came up with. And honestly, it see it sounds so realistic and believable for what a psychopath would do to people. Like you, like people are obsessed with crime junkies and other podcasts like that, and and true crime, and and there's a, a certain extent to like that people want to listen to those graphic details, but I think Easton Ellis pushes that envelope so far where it blows any kind of true crime podcast or movie or show out of the water because it, it reveals just like the depths to that are unimaginable for most people for what another, another human being is capable of. Yeah, the the book version of. Patrick Bateman makes the movie version seem like a volunteer at like Salvation Army. It's insane. One like, of my favorite parts about Pat in the books is his obsession with the stairmaster at the gym. <laughs> like he's he, like part of his workout routine is he has to go on the stairmaster for thirty minutes, and then there's a part there's a scene in the book where someone was on it the whole time he's at the gym, and it drove him crazy because he, he was so mad because he couldn't go on the stairmaster. And it actually happens to me at the gym. I get super upset when I can't get the squat rack. But I don't murder people over it. But the the thing is, it's such a violent movie and graphic character that. A lot of people warned Christian Bale, like, this is career suicide to take a role like this. You shouldn't do this. And I'm sure that's why, like, maybe Leo didn't want to do it because it would have affected his audience. Because Leo, at the time, you know, this is after Titanic. Or, or like, right, yeah, right, yeah. 1999. Yeah, so, like, years after. he had the biggest audience in the world, you could argue. And in the mass, the majority of his audience was young girls and young women. So, he didn't want to... Um, he was on the cover of like every gossip magazine. Yeah, he didn't want to yeah. create a, div a division in, in his audience or lose people as a fan base. I think that's one of the reasons why he probably didn't want to do it. But Christian Bale, I'm sure, took that role and he looked at it. He's like, I don't care what anyone says. That makes me want to do it more. Like, I this is a role that I was born to play and I know I can do it. He's like Tom Brady with the chip on his shoulder. Yeah, and it eventually led him to getting lead roles. And that's how, obviously, you can argue that if he didn't do Patrick Bateman, he probably would have never been Batman. Yeah, that's absolutely true because he, he was in some really good movies. Like, he was in Little Woman. He played, um, what's the kid's name? The, the role that Chalamet played in the newest update. And, you know, he's he's he was always a good actor. But after this, then he did Reign of Fire. And so he led a huge blockbuster movie as, like, the leading man. The and Machinist, he's a leading man, but that's not a huge movie. Super indie movie. Yeah. Like, no one saw that. And that was after um, Reign of Fire, I think. And But, like, if it wasn't for, I think if he, I think this is what got him. Bruce Wayne's uh, the audition for Bruce Wayne because he plays the 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 Bruce Wayne billionaire persona in a way in this movie as Patrick Bateman blending in with society. It's the same thing as Bruce Wayne blending in as this Playboy billionaire. Um, and so I think that's seeing him in this movie is what had what Chris Nolan saw in him. He's like, oh, I think he could he could play a good Bruce Wayne. As the billionaire, let's see if he can play the other two facets of the Batman character. Yeah, there's similarities for sure between yeah. the, the characters of Bruce Wayne and Batman and Patrick Bateman. And you could probably argue just like his inner monster because, you know, both played by Christian Bale, obviously. Both characters deal with this concept of duality of a, of a being, of a person. Uh, Bruce Wayne is a facade to hide the identity of Batman. Patrick Bateman is a facade to hide the identity of that monster that lives inside of them. And, you know, there's an idea of Patrick 
There is no real Patrick. He's simply not there. Whereas Bruce, Batman is his identity and uses Bruce as the facade and the mask. Yeah, that's a great. You made a little list. That's that's awesome. Thanks, bro. I love that. That's that's really yeah. They are so similar. I never thought of that. And even Patrick Bateman's mask that everyone sees is his real mask, just like how Bruce Wayne's face is Batman's mask. So the the face that everyone sees isn't his true identity. Yeah, it's that monster that's buried underneath it. Yeah, and they're both just extremes. Like obviously Patrick Bateman is just like he's not. Like Bruce Wayne's a very intelligent person, but he still has the like the billionaire persona, whereas Patrick Bateman is just way more indulgent in horrible behavior. Even though he has is like a similar like kind of character. Yeah, and Patrick Bateman was actually heavily inspired by Norman Bates in Psycho, hence the the name American Psycho, and hence the name Patrick Bateman because Bateman is drawn from Norman Bates. So you have Norm Man, so that man, and then you. Bates, so Bateman, so that his name was derived from Norman Bates. And Christian Bale also sort of loosely based the character off an interview he saw of Tom Cruise in 1993 on David Letterman. He said he was, he was like taken aback by or obsessed with this like aggressive friendliness of Tom Cruise, even though he saw nothing behind his eyes. It's something like that. It's a really interesting interview. It's like uh, him and Letterman are talking about climbing and mountain climbing and rock climbing and, and, and flying and... Cruz is like aggressively friendly and laughing hysterically when it seems like the story isn't that funny. Mm-hmm. It's it's very similar to Patrick Bateman when he's talking to other people. He's that that loud fake laugh, which is just full of of just f- fakeness. Well, all talk shows are fake. Yeah, all, I mean, all talk shows. The actors give their PR team gives the uh, talk show host uh, cue cards with questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah prepared no. stories. Yeah, no. so, but you know when you watch, no, no, yeah, 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 when you watch Tom Cruise on talk shows, sometimes he's, he's it's go, like, he, he he goes pretty far. It, there's, it's like there's nothing behind him. Yeah, he seems like Patrick Bateman sometimes. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. I also think that Christian Bale would have been an incredible Joker if he never got Batman because the scene when he's giving the confession to his lawyer on the phone when he's being chased by the helicopter, it's like a two minute monologue that doesn't cut. And he's just like does this psychotic laugh and he's just like sweating and screaming and very manic. I, I see like a great version of the Joker in that in that scene and in that performance where I think he would have killed it if he ever got that opportunity. He would have been an awesome Joker for sure. It just would have been a, def- a different take on the Joker. Yeah. And Mary Harron is the director. I think it was important to have a female director. And she also wrote the script and co-wrote it with another woman. She actually the actress who plays his friend. Um, who's visiting from out of town. She's actually the co-writer of the screenplay. And I think it is important to have women make this movie because of how misogynistic the character is, how violent he is, especially towards women. And because I think if a man made this, um, that would have been maybe a big thing in the press. Like, man, a, a man makes a movie about a, a man who's horrible to women. And so I think that being able to tell the story through the perspective of a woman uh, was vital to the story itself and the film being successful and being um, accepted in yeah, a way. I, I agree because I think that interpretation that people just, when they look at the surface of this movie and they're like, oh, it's such a, a horrible movie about promoting this kind of behavior, when again, it's not. It's a critique on that behavior. It's a satire on that behavior. And it's important, I think, you're right, to have a feminist and a female director make that movie to kind of show that it's a satire and it's a critique. And I think a lot of people... They, they, a lot of people who aren't aware, they, they would assume that a man made it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like we talked to on that Red Flag podcast and how, and they brought up how, Fight Club, Fight Club, American Psycho, and a couple of other movies are regarded as like misogynistic. Um, only men like these movies because it's like suit, like it's toxic. Yeah, toxic masculinity. But I think a lot of people would be surprised to find out that women made this movie and women wrote this movie. Yes, it was adapted from a novel that a man made, but also like. I think that shows the idea that, you know, this is storytelling and Mary Harron is telling this this character's story. And it's the same thing as people who think that Martin Scorsese is glorifying violence or glorifying being a gangster or glorifying um, uh, debauchery with Wolf of Wall Street. It's like that's not what they're doing. They're telling the story of this character. And the only way to do that is to tell it through the character's point of view. And so she's telling Patrick Bateman's story. And the only way to tell it is through his point of view. And in order to do that accurately, you have to show him do horrible things, say horrible things, and think horrible things. And he's the lead of the movie, so it's not that he's a hero. Um, you would identify you would um, identify him as an antihero, 
because he's a villain who's the lead of the movie. But it's in no way is it glorifying this behavior. Like you said multiple times, this is a satire. And the satire is um, critiquing this kind of personality in, in these kinds of um, ideas and identities that people are drawn to and like the idea of conforming to the the desire for materialism and, and perfectionism and superficiality and and greed and and wealth and the desire for for attention and 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 casual indulgences yeah I mean that's what I hope we do with this podcast is we help people not just look at the surface of a movie and a story don't just look at the surface what are the filmmakers trying to say with the story with the themes with the characters? The surface of Fight Club looks terrible. The surface of American Psycho looks terrible. But when you understand what they're about, it has nothing to do with the concept of that interpretation where it's just glorifying horrible masculinity. And that's why I think it's okay to laugh at this movie because it's meant to be funny. It's a black comedy. It's a black comedy. And Mary Heron, she perfectly balanced this line because in so many other hands, I think this movie would not have worked tonally. But she really manages to get that across where... She shows these horrible things, and Patrick Bateman says and thinks these terrible things, but they're funny. And it's also a testament to Christian Bale's performance that makes it funny because oftentimes, you know, he's silly. He's goofy. Like when he's dancing in in, uh, his apartment to Huey Lewis in the news, and he's like shaking his hips. It's like it's really silly, and it kind of takes away the, the gravity of what he's doing. And I think that's the whole point of the movie is just it's okay to laugh especially when the movie is about laughing at this kind of person. Yeah, and the third act of this movie is wild because we have this intense killing spree. It's a rampage. That, yeah, yeah. That, that Patrick Bateman goes on. Uh, the woman at the ATM with the gun with the feed me a straight cat situation, then he kills cops, he kills security guards. Um, he kills the security guard in the wrong building. Yeah, <laughs> and so did this happen like what really happened at the end of american psycho like is there a clear answer of he committed all these murders he didn't commit all these murders there, there's a lot of possibilities and the book and film are both ambiguous with their ending um did patrick bateman even kill anyone at all i think that personally patrick bateman is a killer but not the kind of killer that he thinks he is or wants to be. Like, I think, like, some of the murders he did commit— You think, like, he he probably just killed the homeless people, maybe? I think he killed the homeless person for sure. I think he killed that woman he picked up on the sidewalk when they're both crossing the street, and you see her head later on. I mean, he's he's holding her lock of hair in the office, which is great because— No, he he she's the one's head in the freezer. Well, yeah, but he, yeah. it's also the next cut of the, of the movie is him holding her lock of hair. No, that girl's from the club. Am I, oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Okay, so— the, so the the sidewalk lady in the, the head in the freezer and the freezer and then the girl at the club is the girl that murders and acquisitions okay. girl okay yeah. so which is great because Mary Harron doesn't have to show you the murders she she just does the great cuts of like here's the lock of hair and here's the head in the freezer so I think that Patrick Bateman commits maybe half these murders maybe not all of them obviously the part where the delusion seems to be real is the chainsaw murder for me that's ridiculous that no one comes out of the building but again it's that concept of everyone in this movie is so self-centered and absorbed by themselves in their own desires they don't care what's happening around them they don't even notice just like how evelyn doesn't even look at the the table when he's drawing a woman killed with a chainsaw with a crayon which is insane and then the atm thing where feed me a straight cat that's obviously a delusion probably in a way and shooting everybody maybe maybe he does kill them all and the concept of, like I said, just said that everyone's just too self-centered to notice what he's doing. But I think he probably kills half the people. I think he does not kill Paul Allen, though, because Paul Allen's apartment is pristine and cleaned, obviously, when he goes back to it and it's being shipped, it's being shopped by a realtor. But also the lawyer at the end says that Paul Allen, he had just had dinner with him in London twice, right? Ten days ago or something like that. But the, again, that that brings me back to the point where they're all mistaking each other for each other. They're all carbon copies of each other. So maybe the lawyer thought that Paul Allen was someone else or didn't even – he thought that the person he had dinner with was Paul Allen. Yeah, that's that's a definitely a way to look at it. But the thing with the apartment at the end is that means that it was never Paul Allen's apartment. 
and that it was always just an empty apartment that Pat probably like broke into and was del had this delusion that he was using it to store bodies. Yeah, so maybe the person, maybe he killed the person he thought was Paul Allen, that but that wasn't Paul Allen. Yeah, or he killed nobody. Yeah, because in that apartment, when the, the escorts escaping during the chainsaw scene, she she, she uncovers like seven different bodies throughout yeah. the apartment, and so that shows that the whole thing could have been a delusion. And that it was just an open apartment that nobody was living in at the time. Ambiguous endings are fun because this movie came out in 2000 and we're still talking about it. There's still no clear answer because I think with film, people really want like an, like an answer. It's because it's a visual medium. It's not like a book where you're okay with ambiguous endings. I think people demand answers when they watch films. I'm okay with ambiguous answers. That's why Inception drives people crazy because they're like, what happens at the end of Inception? Whatever you want, pal. Obviously, there's like he's wearing the ring, so that means he's in in the in the real world. So or maybe maybe he. So then the totems. It's it's not his totem. It's Maul's totem. So it's all like in his, he's still dreaming, but it's an ambiguous ending. You get to decide what happens. You get to interpret it for yourself. What I love about this movie is is the last shot after he confesses to Laurie, or he's talking to Laurie at the bar. And no, when he sits back down at the table with his friends and behind him is a door and on the door is uh, a sign that says this is not an exit and that's the last line of the book this is not an exit what do you think that means i think that in this moment patrick bateman's having some sort of philosophical or existential crisis or realization because this is right after he just confronts his lawyer after he gives the confession on the phone he's like what, what don't you get you moron like i i killed all these people i killed paul allen and so when he finds out that it's impossible that he could have killed Paul Allen, maybe he didn't kill all these people. Maybe he did. Either way, even he says that great line where he says, this confession has meant nothing. I think that's the last thing that he says to us as an audience yeah. member, as a yeah. narrator. And it seems like the concept that he's trapped in this world or this existence of being this monster inside of his head and he can't that, he can't leave it that's it there's he there is no escape for him he's trapped and there's he'll never be able to escape this this psychopathic uncontrollable uh chaos inside of his mind is i think basically that's what it means but this is not an exit meaning there's no way you can get out of this he's in his own personal hell yeah exactly i love the ending yeah it's, i love this movie it's awesome it's great and I'm I'm not ashamed to laugh at it. <laughs> I'm not ashamed to laugh. every time I I've, I I've seen it like ten times. The more times I watch it, the more the more funny it gets. And then the the funny bar the funny parts are they're just so little things like so short like like when he washes his hands his gloves in the sink yeah and things like that or like when he's leaving the laundromat and uh, he tells the girl oh hell I'll call you and he's smiling then his face drops to just like disgust like I want to kill you the last the last moment the last thing you see of him is just like this face drop then he turns away it's like two frames if you yeah. blink you'll miss it yeah it's these little things that Christian Bale does and that Patrick Bateman does that are just so funny and I think that like it, um, it's just endlessly entertaining this movie it really is how about we move on to some American Psycho superlatives who is the MVP of American Psycho Christian Bale. Absolutely. Without question. Yeah, he also... I'm going to give him the best actor as well, too. Yeah, because, best actor. Because, again, this is a character study of Patrick Bateman, but it's also a satire. But, like, Christian Bale's performance in many ways, like, supersedes the entire film. Like, oftentimes you're like, what is the plot of this movie? But I don't even care because Christian Bale is magnetic on camera and he's incredible in this role. I think it's a legendary performance and it's a shame he got no awards recognition. He probably would now if the movie came out these days, but... Back then, I think a lot of people didn't understand what it was. What's the uh, best scene? Business card scene. I say Paul Allen's murder. It's just so funny. Yeah. The dancing around and when he moonwalks with the axe. <laughs> Which he improvised. <laughs> yeah. Is that a raincoat? Yes, it is. Do you have a chow? Like a little pup? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Try getting in the Dorsia now, you stupid bastard. It's not just about the pleasures of conformity and fitting in. <laughs> Best line. Best line is, I have to return some videotapes. <laughs> I think I have to say, hey, I'm a child of divorce. Give me a break. <laughs> best shot. I would say it's that at the end. No, no. I would say the best shot is in the morning routine when he peels off that uh, mask. I think the best shot for me is... When he axes Paul Allen, and it's a long take that Mary Heron keeps on him, 
And so he 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 hacks at him with the with the axe. Blood splays over half just half his face by accident, which worked perfectly to show like the duality and split personality of Patrick Bateman. And then she just follows him to sitting down on the chair and smoking the cigar. It's amazing. It's like Two Face because when he sits down, all you see is the clean half. Yeah. Sequel ideas. I wish they didn't make one. The one with Mila Kunis is not nothing against Mila, but that movie's trash. I never saw it. American Psycho 2. It's really bad. I saw a couple clips of it, and I was like, this is horribly written. It's really, really bad. It's so bad. This this movie shouldn't have a sequel and should never be remade. I know that it was on Broadway, actually. It was was pretty successful, and Matt Smith played um, Patrick Bateman. The Doctor. Doctor. I'd be curious to see him see that uh, performance. I'm sure that was funny. All right, everybody. That wraps our episode on American Psycho. We really hope you enjoyed this one. Make sure to become a patron to help support the show at patreon.com slash Raiders of Lost Podcast. Check out all of our content. Subscribe on YouTube. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. And be sure to go to RaidersofLostPodcast.com to check out all of our content and merch. Thanks for tuning in. It's hip to be square. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Raiders of the Lost Podcast is a mirror image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.